Hello, everyone. My name is Ian Rowe. And I'm Nike Fajors. And welcome to The Invisible Men, where we make the achievements of incredible men invisible no more. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Invisible Men. My name is Ian Rowe, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Nike Fajors, a member of the Leadership Network at AEI. Nike, great to see you as always. And we're very, very excited uh, to have with us today, Dr. Irvin Scott. Uh, and uh, Irvin, as we'll call you uh, on this call, I mean, we can spend the entire episode just on your bio um, because you've been such a Renaissance guy. You're such a, um, just a fascinating combination of interesting areas that really shape the lives of young people and help us all with this question of human flourishing and what are the ingredients. So we can't wait to uh, get into this with you, but you're right now at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, um, used to be in the leadership at uh, the Gates Foundation, which I was at at one time. You were also the chief academic officer uh, in Boston Public Schools um, and the Leadership Institute for Faith and Education at Harvard Life. Uh, which are also very excited to chat with you about. So welcome, good to see you. I am delighted to be here. Thank you, Ian and Nike, and looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, so, um, so let's just talk a little bit about uh, younger uh, Irvin Scott, right? Before you were the, the, the man that you are now with, with developed views of the world and, and a sense of how you can make a contribution were there any experiences that you had earlier in life that um, that may have related to race, but helped you realize that race did not need to be an impediment in terms of how you thought about your own sense of possibility? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Uh, again, delighted to be here. You know, when I thought about this question, I immediately thought about, um, <clears throat> to be really honest, the sermon I recently gave. So I'm an ordained elder in my church. Uh, well, I grew up I, I grew up in the Church of God in Christ, right? So Kojic is the acronym often used uh, for that church, that denomination. But I'm also an ordained elder. And I recently gave a sermon about um, fatherhood. Um, on Father's Day, uh, and uh, I, I used as a sort of text or theme, Bibles, books, and balls. Um, because bas basically what I was talking about was uh, sort of the core elements of what it meant to raise three African-American boys. I have three sons, Irvin, Leon, and Nicholas. And so I was trying to communicate to um, to the fathers uh, and or others in that in that particular setting, that those were sort of core elements of how I raised my kids. And the more I thought about it, those were core elements of who I was growing up also. And race intersects with all of them, right? So take Bibles. I grew up in the church, but I grew up in the black church. Um, and when I say black church, Church of God in Christ, millions, I'm not sure what the number of the membership is, but it's millions. It's also always been a very large Pentecostal um, church experience, but predominantly African American. My father is a pastor, um, still a pastor in that denomination, a bishop in that denomination, and so I 
And church was just really deeply a part of who we are on who we were. And even today on Sunday, um, Tuesdays, Fridays. Um, and then if it was a revival night, pretty much all week. Um, so just being around that community of people, again, predominantly African-American, which was very affirming at the same time, right? So there was so much that would happen in the church. My father has this saying, um, give them the 47 Psalms. Well, 47 Psalms talks about clapping your hands. And so anytime anyone did anything well, he'd say, give them a 47 Psalm. And everybody <laughs> clap and applaud. And he did that in church, but he also did it at home, right? So there was this constant sense of affirmation um, that came through this religious experience for us. Um, books um, was, tr was always very important to my father and my mother because I think in many ways, being children of the 60s and, and sort of more challenging time, they understood the importance of education, right? And oftentimes in the historical context, the faith and education experience of people of color went hand in hand. You got, as I just said, affirmed and pushed and challenged in the school, but you got those things also happening in the church and in a way that was reciprocal. So they wanted to see that you were doing well, well academically as well as spiritually. So books were always a tremendous, uh, tremendously important part of who I was. Um, and um, I, I remember this one story out in with balls in a second, but I remember this one story of um, my ninth grade English teacher. I share this many times who uh, told us that we were going to be studying um, poetry. Uh, I remember not being crazy about studying poetry, although my parents emphasized academics. I should say that I wasn't a stellar student. They emphasized academics, but I still was cut up. I'm not sure if they used the term. <laughs> I was cut up in school, and I think some of that had to do with the fact that my parents were very strict at the same time. But anyway, when she told us we were going to do this focus on poetry and we're actually going to be studying the poet Robert Frost, a white poet. Um, and um, I uh, was, and she told us we were going to recite the poem for everybody in the class. I remember not being crazy about reciting the poem. I, I don't think I even thought about the fact that he was white or black. That wasn't in my consciousness. I just wasn't crazy about reciting poem, a poem for the entire class. Because as a ninth grader, make no mistake about it, I still wanted to be cool. I still wanted to be, I'm not sure if I was using the term hip at the time, but it was still important for me to be in the in crowd and poetry didn't strike me as the way to do that. Uh, yeah, a way to do that. Long story short, she pushed back. She's like, you're gonna do this, but you're gonna also write another poem. And I wrote that poem and recite both of them. I wrote that poem about something that I was passionate about, which then brings up the third point, And that was football. I was very passionate about football. I was very passionate about sports. My father was athletic. My brothers were athletic. And in many ways, to your point around race, that's where I saw a lot of positive um, images of people who looked like me in sports, particularly football. Um, one of my all-time favorite athletes of all time, and the poem that I wrote about was inspired by him, was Tony Dorsett, running back to the Dallas Cowboys. Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness. That was my primetime experience with 
that type of professional athlete. And I, I wrote this poem. I'm going to say it real quick just because I'm feeling inspired to do you it. You remember it. Wow. Remember it. I say it all the time. It's still <laughs> so much to me. Uh, it goes like this. Behind two backs, I stand waiting for the first back's hand, which holds the thing that makes me spring to reach the touchdown's brand. Sometimes I'm hit, which brings great pain, but it's even worse when my run's in vain because some lineman jumps off sides and the ref yells out that it cost you five. But through all this, I must keep running so the defense will think he's quite stunning. They'll key on me from that play on, but I'm determined to keep on going. Ninth grade, nearly going on maybe 40 years ago now, um, but there's just a whole intersectionality around race, around athleticism, around teamwork, uh, identity, teamwork. team, exactly, that still sort of shapes me even to today. So that was a long answer, but that sort of gives you a sense of- Wow, I don't think we've ever had a guest recite poetry self-written <laughs> like that. No. And, 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 and were you hip? Were, did, did your classmates say, like, did you, did you get invited to the, to the after parties? At, at, uh, <laughs> All right. That is, I don't think I've ever been asked that question. And I've recited this poem many times. Well, let's just say it this way. Even if I got invited, my father wasn't letting me go. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't really matter. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a little bit about that. Uh, it's a good question. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for sharing. Wow, there's there's wow. so much richness. Um, your parents clearly played a huge role um, in your life. I'm I'm curious when you were giving the sermon a few weeks ago on fatherhood, were there a lot of fathers in the uh, in the congregation? Yeah, a lot of fathers. Um, this sermon, so we said weeks ago, but this sermon was actually, I, I probably mischaracterized the, the timeline. It was actually before COVID hit. So it was still in person. Okay. So I, this would have been 2019 or 20. Okay. Uh, but it's fresh in my memory because of your question. And yes, a lot of fathers in, um, in, in, in the, uh, in that particular setting, um, for sure. I mean, one of the things that, because I'm, I'm often frustrated when, you know, when you go to church, there's often a, pre a preponderance of, of women and not enough, not enough men, and particularly young men. Um, and in some ways, that is a community that could significantly benefit from messages around fatherhood and what it means to be a man in our current society. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, th I think you're spot on. Um, and um, I think there have been varying degrees to elevate that issue um, from the Obama administration and, and others. I mean, it, it's a it's a touchy issue to sort of focus on um, and because some people um, uh, see your focus on the importance of fatherhood in the African-American community as a way of critiquing the African-American community. But the fact of the matter is it's critical. It's critical. No matter what community you're a part of, it's critical. Um, and so, um, yeah. And, and back to the faith perspective or the faith part of who I am, that's, I often saw predominantly, I was in church community where it was predominantly women. Um, and uh, that was that was just the case. And so 
I think that does contribute to some challenges that we have, particularly in the African-American community. Now, there's there are many papers and research done around what caused the absence of those fathers. Um, and of course, that has to be addressed from criminal um, justice systems or ineffective criminal justice systems. So the whole drugs, just a lot. But the fact of the matter is it creates this reality that creates challenges in our community that are very, very... Yep, and, and intergenerational. And for what it's worth, City Journal just released uh, 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 an essay in research, I think Patrick Brown, a couple of weeks ago, about the impact on, on the white community of, of uh, young, young, single men who are adrift, sometimes having children outside of marriage, and, you know, some things like the opioid crisis and other deaths of despair, like all of these things, which are often spoken about in the white community, have many of the same roots. Um, and so these issues are, are universal. They are not uh, solely a pathology of any given race. That is so true. And it's one of the reasons I'm, I, I don't mean to just jump around, but I want to just say something about the Leadership Institute for Faith and Education. One of the things that we talk about, I'll just go to audience instead of going immediately to mission, is this whole idea of rural white communities oftentimes reflecting some of the same challenges that in black and Latino communities reflect. And so some segments of the black and Latino community. Very true. Very true. And very true. And so we like I'm, I'm at an ed school that often, well, not just ed schools, but I think we do this in education, oftentimes training programs, is we focus a lot on urban communities. Um, we talk about Black and Latino, Latinx uh, um, students. And then I, but, but I think we, we miss rural white communities that have some of the same challenges. And so that's why Leadership Institute for Faith and Education is really explicit about um, targeting those communities because our premises, our, our, our theory is that faith communities play a critical role in these places, but we oftentimes don't acknowledge or don't seek to partner um, in ways that will lead to impact for, for, these, for these students. And so... And Irvin, what uh, community did you grow up in? So I grew up in a town called Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, that's what you're asking. Um, it, interestingly enough, I think Franklin County, in the most recent elections, well, went, was red uh, in terms of uh, the um, the um, 2020 election. The elections, exactly. And so I grew up in probably a more rural white town than it was anything else. Um, but we were close to communities like Harrisburg. And I think the church itself, um, when I say community cities like Harrisburg and Philadelphia, the church, my church experience oftentimes uh, meant that I was in urban communities all the time. Um, mm because my father fellowshiped with pastors and preachers and bishops in these urban communities. Um, and so, but, but Chambersburg itself and Franklin County itself is predominantly white. As a matter of fact, I think we, there were 600 
600 students in our graduating class and less than 30 uh, kids of color. Hmm. Interesting. Well, that, that background helps me understand how you probably ended up attending uh, Millersville University, right? Was that not too far from home? That wasn't too far from home at all. Plus, it was a state school. Um, and um, we, my parents, my father was a full-time pastor. My mother was a, a homemaker and there were six of us and they didn't have the funds to necessarily send us to different schools and even state schools, a lot of Pell Grants uh, and other ways of being successful, uh, other ways of paying for school. And so, yeah, I went to one of those state schools and Millersville was probably about 90 miles from where I live. Um, but it does also speak to the importance of state higher education systems like the UMass system. It would be equivalent to that uh, sure. here in Massachusetts. Did you, did you maintain your athletics into your uh, college years? I actually did not. Um, and you won't believe why I didn't. I didn't. You would probably, both of you would believe why I didn't. And that was because I got into school. I like really got into my studies. Mm. I think in, in high school, I did well in school because dad was like anything below a D or C, I can't remember, I can't remember which one it was. It was one of those. Then you can't play anything. Um, you have to drop sports, um, and you just, you just can't play. And so I maintained, I was, I was a pretty good student, but I wouldn't say I was passionate about school. I was, I was passionate about athletics and I did well in school. Um, but I, in some ways school was a way of maintaining my athletic, um, uh, involvement. Um, and I'm very very, um, I embraced that part of who I was because it changed dramatically uh, when I got to college. And it, and that was in many ways because of really amazing professors who were like, you can write, you can write. Um, and I was like, me, writer? Yes, you do need to write. Would you consider, what did you consider doing and related to your writing? And uh, I hadn't really thought deeply about it, but then that led me into English um, and uh, literature, I think I've always sort of appreciated literature, uh, but didn't necessarily see myself as a person of literature. But then when I got to college, I just, I was like, this is amazing. Where has this urban been? And so I fell in love with writing, um, wrote in many different ways, venues that I could, and fell in love with literature, and ended up going into teaching uh, English, teaching English for years and loving that. Wow. I mean, I, when, I, when I went to college, I played baseball in high school. I loved baseball. But when I went to college, I wanted to continue. My parents shut it down. Okay. You <laughs> well, mean the athletics? Yeah, they, yeah. I mean, their basic thing was the world doesn't need more black male. Um, the, the world doesn't need any more black men in uh, athletics. You can do something different. Wow. That was basically wow. the message. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, my father... Say it again. No, well, I get it. You know, I, 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 I was a little bit more resistant to the idea back then, but I get it now. Yeah. Well, you know, Roland Fryer, Irvin, one of your colleagues at Harvard, who's, who's been on the podcast, it, similar situation, loved football. That was his passion. And then he got to college and he's like, hmm, 
maybe I need to focus on these academics, which I also love. And of course, you know, yeah, the rest is, but uh, that's interesting. Very interesting. So tell me, what, what did Millerville uh, University teach you that even Harvard couldn't teach you? Hmm. Millersville. What did Millersville teach me that even Harvard couldn't teach me? Um, you know, um, that's a good question. I, I think a lot of my learning uh, around leadership, um, and when I say leadership, I mean leading other, leading other students. Like I was an RA at Millersville. And I think that was some of my formative experience with leading individuals who were peers. Um, and so I would say that was one of the formative experiences that I've had. And in many ways, I've been in leadership ever since. A res residential assistant uh, had an entire floor. Um, and um, that was just, that was a new, ex new but powerful experience. Even as a, as a team member, football, um, track, the things that I played, I wasn't necessarily a leader in those those spaces. Um, and so Millersville was an early experience with uh, with leadership. Um, I, I also, uh, I, I had to scrap at Millersville from a financial standpoint. Um, I'm, I, I'm still scrapping, but it's at a different level. Um, but at Millersville, I had to deliver pizzas. I had to work on Saturdays. I worked at Yellow Freight. I don't know if you remember that um, trucking company, but uh, just think of one of these trucking companies where they have these trucking depots where they come and unload all of their their loads and move them to different trucks. There are these big centers where um, they have to do this sort of transition of um, uh, the load. And I work there late at night um, because um, while my tuition and room and board were being paid for by Pell Grants and um, other forms of financial aid. Um, my parents weren't necessarily sending me money to mm -hmm. or to get a new shirt or get new sneakers. And so I had to really work hard for that. And I think that is something uh, that I learned uh, definitely at Millersville um, uh, that I would put in that category. That's a good question. I had never thought about that, especially when you say that Harvard couldn't teach you. That's, that's <laughs> well, also, yeah, that leadership. I think we all have a story of whether it's a trucking company or a fast food company, we did whatever it took to keep the engine Every moving. That is so true. That is so true. I was I was actually asked the other day, you know, because there's a lot of discussion about just just um, eliminating student debt, um, you know, in order to, in, you know, in, in order, and it's a lot of it's framed around equity. And I sometimes wonder if that's, you know, the people who are recommending it or, you know, if they're largest, we need to take the burden off. But there's something about um, having to work, you know, to put yourself through school, to take on some debt. There's something to that, right? Because, mm. first of all, it's life, you know, um, and uh, there's a sense of responsibility and achievement that you gain from doing those things, understanding that you're making the sacrifice now for the future. If you just kind of eliminate that, 
think yeah. it has a corrosive effect over time. Yeah, I think I think there is something to be said for that. I mean, if for no other reason than to have the experience of paying something off and the sense of accomplishment. I did it. When I when we did that. When when sorry, when my wife and I did did that uh in a cumulative way, she went to a small liberal arts school, much more expensive than, than mine. Or she she got scholarships, so that's a little different. Um, but um, but yeah, it, this sense of accomplishment, I was able to do that. We worked hard on this over time for, for the most part of taking care of my undergraduate degree. The only slight nuance I would add to that is for individuals who have for example, um, who have gone to community colleges and haven't graduated, haven't been successful, have not had a great um, experience, mm -hmm. led to some type of viable career opportunity. And as a result of that, are that are just more and more overwhelmed and challenged with working their way out of that situation. Um, in some ways, I feel like I wonder, is that really their fault or did they did somewhere were they failed somewhere in the system? And if we don't help them get out, they're just going to get further and further under, which creates a whole lot of more challenge. So. Well, that's for sure. But that's why I run schools. I mean, you know, yeah, if, if kids I mean, in that situation, you're talking about going to community college. What if they came out of a K to 12 system that had not prepared them effectively? Failed them. Right. And so then they're they're trying They get into community college. They actually take on debt. They right? take on debt. But they're taking classes that are for um, remediation. So, it's, so they're not credit bearing. Right. And then they drop out because, you know, life happens and suddenly they have debt, no degree. Right. And it's so it's, it's an interesting cycle. Yeah. So, I, you know, that, that's some of the nuance that I think is lost sometimes when we do talk about things like. Let's just forgive student debt, $50,000, yeah. which then ends up ha ha helping people who are middle class or have the capacity to pay it back over time, but don't actually help the very people that need it the most. Yeah, no, that is a very fair point. And you're exactly right. It's nuanced. So, you know, in, in reference to your poem, um, I'm struck by you know, you've obviously spent a lot of time in the classroom are there any students that you just you remember almost as well as you do your your, your ninth grade poem that they touched your heart there was there was a relationship there oh yeah there are a ton of them and many of them i still follow or vice versa they follow me on facebook um oh yeah um yeah, I, I, where do I start? Uh, a lot of them are the hard stories, right? So I think of one student who, I directed a gospel choir when I was at uh, this high school, McCaskey High School, huge gospel choir, it was amazing. It still exists today, but it was like a hundred kids every day that would come wow. during, I can't remember, the, the periods would fluctuate. And they would just sing gospel music. I would teach them. I was the English teacher. I was one of the te English teachers at the high school, but I had this background in gospel 
And this school had a gospel choir and they needed someone to direct. Long story short, so it was huge. I did it for like 15 years. Uh, we'd go all over the same. Um, and one student told me years after she left the school, she said, I loved gospel choir for multiple reasons, but one of them was because of because watching you as a as the teacher, as a father, as a husband, because occasionally we'd go places, my kids would come along, my wife would come and and we'd all be on the bus and and she said, You didn't know it at the time, but I was living in an abusive home. And um I it was just it was terrible, but coming and seeing you and your family just gave me hope around family. It blew my mind. She shared this through, she shared this through Facebook years afterwards. How do you forget something like that, right? And so that was just amazing experience, but I have so many like that. I have a student right now um, who, interestingly enough, wrote a, a letter to the local uh, NPR station, um, a WITF, about my teaching and they had this annual award and I got an award for um, being teacher of the year for this area. And, um, and my connection with her just recently is, I don't know if I told you, one of, one of my sons plays in the NFL. So I have a son who plays, speaking of football, plays in wow. Which team? And, uh, the L.A. Rams. Oh, my gosh. They're playing this weekend. I'm on my way to Tampa in about. Uh, <laughs> no, you're not. Are you serious? Sweet. <laughs> she said, yeah, we're going to Tampa. But anyway. Uh, wow, so when this so when this airs, which is next Wednesday, uh, you will either be very happy or or not so. So we, you're praying well, for Tom Brady to, uh, to uh, flame out. Exactly. In, in some shape, form, or fashion, we're hoping that we're happy and pleased because it's always a success if he's safe and he's healthy and all of that good stuff. Yeah. Uh, we were in L.A. I was in L.A. last weekend, and, of course, that went very, very well. Uh, but I brought scary, up that there was, a, there was a scary play. It wasn't In that game or another game, there was a scary play. It was that game. It was that game. Buddha Baker. Yes. Uh, yes. And, um, yeah. My yeah. Son, Buddha was on defense. My son is defense. So he wasn't on the field, but he did, along with many other players, go over and began praying right there on the field. I actually said wow. that in a recent um, prayer meeting. And Buddha's doing much better. He's uh, the next day he was on the plane back to Arizona, giving a thumbs up. He's doing really well. It turned out to be nothing serious. But uh, I brought up the I brought up my son because the the student who wrote about me has a son now who is a big fan of my son, and so she bought him, <laughs> she bought him a she bought him my son's jersey number and wow. gift and my son signed it last weekend and i'm sending it to her so it's 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 just amazing that's what i love about ed education that's what i love about learning that's what i love about anything where you were in the business of setting up and always happy but setting up the transformation of lives
it's always reciprocal, not just for the person you're doing it, but for you also. Wow. 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 Well, I, I, I know that we, we, uh, we may not have a lot of time left, but I want to make sure we get in our, our uh, question of advice for Daryl. But Mike, did you want to do a quick uh, speed round? Sure. We'll move quickly. So, Dr. Scott, every, uh, every guest goes through the speed round where I'll offer up uh, two individuals, ask you to pick one, tell me why, or maybe two philosophies. Um, we'll start with our, our, our favorite, which is Malcolm or Martin? Martin. And why? Uh, both amazing, both necessary. Martin, because he's a minister. Uh, Malcolm was a minister also, but Martin, because he's a minister that uh, in a faith that I'm, uh, I identify a little more with. Um, but that's the immediate thing that comes in my mind. Uh, Harvard University or the Gates Foundation? Wow. And context is sort of like impact on the world, let's say. Oh, 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 wow. Oh, man. How many, who's going to see this? Um, okay, anyway. Um, <laughs> very, well, very interesting question. <laughs> uh, I would probably say Harvard University. Uh, I, I, I struggled because I think both have continued to play a critical role in shaping education opportunities for America's children particularly the most vulnerable um, and most marginalized in this country. Excellent. Last one. Um, Jim Brown or Tony Dorsett? Not even a question. Uh, Tony Dorsett. Uh, wow. Sure. Jim Brown, I'm sure paved the way. I just don't know. I hate, I'm not a historian of football. I am a person who's ex who experienced it in real time. And so Tony, who one of my bucket list things is to meet him one day and to recite this poem for him, Tony literally shaped the way I think about sport and achievement. And, um, and now my son's playing, so it, it's, it's just a lot. Uh, he, he's had a significant impact on. Wow. You should, did you ever see the 60 Minutes episode with Tony Dorsett later in his life? I did not. It's well. I know he's, had, I know he's had the um, CT. Yes, he's had, he's had the result of so many head injuries. Yeah. He talks about it. It's a, it's a, if you're, if you're interested in his life, it's very powerful to watch. You gotta watch and, it. And when he is asked the question, of given everything that's happened with your injury, would you do it again? Don't tell me. You have to listen to his answer. I gotta hear that for myself. You gotta listen. Uh, if, if, if I, will I will send you the link, but it's well worth watching that 60 Minutes interview with uh, Tony Dorsett. Uh, okay, well, Irvin, we are, we are coming near the end of our time, and I feel like we could, we could spend a lot more time together. You, you've had some very deep experiences but but you know when you were uh, chief academic officer at boston public schools there were probably a lot of young men similar to our young man daryl who we talked about our our 16 year old imaginary black kid but there's so many kids who are still trying to find their way in the world we live in today so i'd love to 
get your counsel for what you would say to Daryl in terms yeah. of how he would, how he should think about his life. Yeah, you know, the first thing I'd do, to be really honest, is I'd listen to Daryl. I, I, I feel like so much of what I would say back to him would be more relevant um, if I could understand where he's coming from. And I think that's a really important point because I think what people do is they, they put us in a category and they say, we're all like this, or we all have these experiences. Um, and all, all three of us have nuanced experiences, although there are similarities. So the first thing I do is listen to, I am sure that some part of what I would share would in some ways connect to those three B's that I talked about, Bible. But in this case, it may not be the Bible. It may be the Quran, or it may be some other faith experience that Daryl feels connected to. If he has none, then I'd probably share what faith means to me. Um, it's just been a huge part of who I am. If he has had experience, he's like, man, they jacked me up again, then I would listen because a lot of people come with that baggage around faith. And I just think before I tell him how important it is to me, I have to understand why it is what it is to him. So I, I'd say faith would be, this is to your free. You can already see I'm, I'm big <laughs> on this whole idea. Uh, so Bible, books, I just, Daryl, I just don't think, at least in this country, it's hard to get it. It's hard to move up without a learning, without learning, without education, without certain uh, systemic and structural experiences and ex education that allow you to advance. And so, again, understanding his context. Is he at a, is he, is Daryl uh, thinking about dropping out of law school? Is Daryl a seventh grader trying to figure out whether to hang with a certain group or another group. Um, so just giving him that, understanding that context and then figuring out how to connect. Education learning is tremendously important. And then balls is really passion. Like, what are you passionate about? What drives you? What would you do if they paid you or not um, for doing it? Because you're just, I love doing it. And whatever that is, Go after it, nurture it. For me, lately, along with the things that I'm passionate around, my faith and my family, I'm so grateful for, it has become golf, which I love. And at some point in time, we can take that up because if either of you do that, we need to meet on the course. Oh, wow. Okay. I like it. I like it. And, you know, and Irvin, it's, it's actually very thoughtful <clears throat> for you to say, the very first thing you would do is listen because there is wisdom in those words. You know, we all think we have the answer and it might be an answer, but it may be an answer for us, but not necessarily for the person that we're speaking with. So I, I, I very much appreciate that. I'm sure if our symbolic Daryl were here, he would appreciate that too. Yes, he would. All right. Well, Dr. Irvin Scott, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure. It's been a real pleasure. Thank I, you. I feel that we have great work to do together going forward. I look forward to it. Yes. Well, Nike. I, I guess Dr. 
Scott, you weren't kidding that you were pretty good at football because that, that, that fruit didn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> in terms of having a professional football player in the house. My mean, he just dropped that one, too. Like, that was <laughs> so, so ordinary, so happenstance. Like, oh, and, yeah. he's, and he's playing in the playoffs this week. <laughs> Tom he's, Brady. Not like the third, he's not like the third string field goal kicker, you know. Incredible. Yeah. Is, is your, is your, are your mom and dad still alive? They are. They are. As oh. We we uh, we support them quite a bit. Um, so uh, yeah, it's I'm so unique, uniquely. Grandpa can see his son out there. Maybe a Super Bowl this year. This is that's incredible. Incredible. Pretty amazing. Wow. wow. Okay. Well, that gives me even more reason to tune in. I had been rooting for the Buccaneers, but this may this may shift this may shift <laughs> my, a my sensibilities. Um, okay. <laughs> well, again, thank you, thank you, everyone, for watching this episode of The Invisible Men. If you want to see any other episodes, you can go to www.invisible.men. Nike, good to see you as always. And good seeing uh, you, brother. Dr. Scott, Kervin, thank you for everything that you do. Thank you, guys. Thank you for the invitation and uh, really appreciate it. All right. Thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. You can find other episodes at the AEI podcast channel on YouTube or the website invisible.men or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.